This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Rick Martinez. I am a cookbook author, professional eater, and I eat mangoes every single day. And I'm Carla Lolly Music. I'm also a cookbook author, video host, and currently going through a Diet Coke phase. And this is Borderline Salty, the show where we take your calls, boost your confidence, and make you a better, smarter, happier cook. Today we'll discuss the search for perfect hot peppers, salsa verde techniques, and one of my personal favorite condiments, aioli. But before we get into all that, Rick, tell me something good. I had the most incredible breakfast this week. So I went to get my nails done, and the salon is right next to this bakery that has the most incredible buttery, flaky, big, beautiful croissants. And I was like, you know what? I just need to treat myself because, you know, because I had just gotten my nails done, so why not go (laughs) stop and get croissants or four of them? Uh, So I went in, got my croissants, and my my favorite breakfast, uh, like, it's just so simple. It's just beautifully scrambled eggs with a little bit of butter and salt and then a heated croissant. Mm. And it's... It's just so simple, but that's what I love because you can really taste the butter both in the croissant and in the eggs. And to me, they just pair so well together. The textures are very different, and it just makes me so incredibly happy. But, I mean, why wouldn't a breakfast full of butter make you happy? Hmm, You do love a good breakfast. I love a good breakfast. And when there's butter involved, even better. So, Carla, why don't you tell me something good? Well, this week I had such a sweet little afternoon with my younger son, Cosmo, and we had to go to the Upper West Side for a doctor's appointment. So we had already planned in advance that we were going to play hooky. So this is like parent condoned hooky. You're not going to have to go back to school afterwards and ended up in this place called Broadway Restaurant that is stuck in time in like the best old New York kind of way, like has not had the update. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, The mm -hmm. vinyl booths and the horseshoe-shaped counter with stools. And like, we just had the cutest lunch and he ordered a cheeseburger and I got my feta spinach omelet and fries. And Mm. our waitress was like 70 probably. 
And he was like, wow, she was taking care of that whole room by herself. Did you see that? Like, she had all the tables. And at the end of that, he was like, I hope you left her a big, fat tip. And I was like, you know what, Kaz? I did. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just so cute that, like, he had that thought. I don't know. We just had a really, really nice time and then took the subway home. That is so sweet. I I love places like that. Yeah. You're walking into a completely different era and nothing, whatever whatever's happening to you on the outside just goes away and you're just in that moment. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It really felt like a stolen, like the whole thing felt like a stolen moment because he should have been in school and I should have been working. <laughs> but, you know, so you get this like... It's like, this wouldn't have happened if we didn't make it happen kind of feeling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I fell asleep on his shoulder on the subway home. He was like, Mom? That is so adorable. I was like, I'm awake, but I'm asleep. This is a thing that you'll learn how to do as well. (laughs) And on that sweet note, let's dive into these questions. Hi, uh, my name is Sal Munoz, and I am calling about my salsa verde. I'm a proud Mexican-American, and I've been trying to recreate my parents' salsa verde for years. And every time that I try to do it, it always comes out gummy, very gelatinous. I've tried milpero tomatillos. I've tried different types of tomatillos. I've tried including the onion. I've tried putting in the onion raw, putting it in roasted, leaving it out entirely. It has not worked, and I don't know how to address it. So if you could help me out with that, I would really appreciate it. Great question. Yeah. I think part of it is, you know, the way that you're you're mixing or blending. A lot of fruits will do this. And so I think with salsas, what I always tell people is if you're going to blend it, which there's no reason why you shouldn't, but make sure that you always blend it low, and quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, don't overblend for many reasons, one of which is if you blend it on high speeds, you're going to get a lot of air incorporated into it, and it's going to taste more like a smoothie as opposed to a salsa. Yeah, I hate that. I hate that. And I really like chunky also. So you can try, you know, blending at a really low speed for a short amount of time. Just throw everything in and blend it up. Or you can do it in a molcajete or use a potato smasher uh, or a bean smasher, use a fork, And that should alleviate any sort of gelatinous issues you might have. What I also thought about while he was talking was, you know, sometimes with these family recipes, when you make them yourself, they're never as good as what you remember when that other person made them for you. And, like, it's possible that the one that he was having the whole time did have a slightly gelatinous quality Mm -hmm. to it, but because it was, like, this familiar thing that he knew that he loved and wasn't scrutinizing and judging, like, might not have even noticed. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing is, like, when you are making these recipes for yourself to to lower that standard of comparing it to, you know, this legend in your family who used to make it for you, because, like, maybe it was always gelatinous and it was fine because you weren't, like, being so hard on yourself. And, I mean, or, I know this happens a lot in my family, like, you know, they'll tell you what you what they think is in it and then they just forget a step or they forget an ingredient or, you know, and it's like... Totally. Unless you're standing there watching them and recording exactly what they're doing, you know, it's very likely that you're going to miss some step or something that they do that they've done for 40 years that they think is completely irrelevant or unnecessary is actually really necessary. 
Yeah. And then you're like, whoa, 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 what was that? What was that? Like, oh, this? This just my, like, one special thing I do that I don't tell anybody about and yours didn't come out right? Oh, oh, I don't know why. You pull out the malcajete and, like, jump on one foot and, you know, throw some <laughs> salt over your shoulder. Yeah. That's a classic Italian grandma thing, too. They're like, oh, your sauce didn't come out as good as mine? I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, So that might be a deliberate omission, but... Right. (laughs) Hello, you're on the line with Rick and Carla. Hi, my name is Dulce. My question is, I never know how much salt to put into raw meat. It's either always really salty or not enough salt. I don't think I have that sense to know when to stop or when to add more so if you guys can just kind of give me a few tips of I don't know just anything would help this is a great question it's so important and it's not a sixth sense at all it's just food chemistry totally yeah and I also think it's like just general rule of thumb so my rule of thumb is one teaspoon kosher salt and typically it's it's diamond crystal which is four grams of salt per pound of meat or vegetable. Can you tell Rick just developed an entire cookbook and <laughs> knows his gram measurements of salt? Um, if you do have Morton's or if you're using a fine salt, don't go crazy trying to find diamond because sometimes it just depends where you live. Cut that amount in half. So it would be a half teaspoon per pound or I guess per quart. And then as far as developing sort of the feel of it or being more confident in your salting in general, I would say stick with one salt and just become comfortable with the salt that you use, right? Pick the salt that works for you, for your budget, for availability, for whatever it is, and use it consistently. Yeah. I think part of what people mistake as necessarily a a sixth sense is might be this, you know, you see chefs all the time, like they take a pinch of salt and they throw it in, Mm -hmm. or they'll take two or three pinches and then it's like seasoned perfectly. Right. Part of that is knowing how much salt is actually in your pinch. Mm -hmm. So I know that a normal pinch for me is about a quarter teaspoon and a big pinch is about a half teaspoon. And it's because I have... I've actually measured that. So you can do that either on a scale and you'll know more accurately to the gram like what your pinch is. Or you can just kind of eyeball, like put a a quarter teaspoon of salt on your countertop and then grab a pinch and then just kind of look. Like, is it, does it look like it's about that? You know, and, and then you can actually even try and put it in the spoon. But having that level of awareness of like what's in your hand at that moment will help you a lot. Yeah, obviously you can't do this with raw meat, but tasting as you go. So Go slow, go gradual, salt at every sort of step of the recipe. And it would be very hard to undersalt if you're salting and tasting as you go. And you just want to train yourself to stop before it's too salty. So, yeah, yeah, we're not telling you to like lick a burger, but you know, as far as, <laughs> as, far as salt goes, as far but, as salt I mean, you know, goes, if the mood strikes, lick away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who are we to stop you? Who are we to stop you? Borderline Salty, you've reached us during working hours. Hi, my name is Natalie. So I always find different recipes that call for different types of hot peppers. And my grocery stores really only have jalapenos. So 
what sources do you trust possibly online to find these types of peppers? Do you always have to get them fresh or can you rehydrate certain peppers? Um, great sources and great brands would be appreciated. Thank you so much. I have bad news for Natalie. She's going to have to move. Um, so I'm just going to recommend like places I've traveled and been blown away by the chili selection, like Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Texas. You could join Rick in Mazatlan, I'm sure. But yeah, I kind of have the same problem here. Jalapeno, Serrano, the occasional red Fresno. And I'm picking up and I'm heading out. Okay, so Natalie, before you call the real estate agent and start listing your house, um, we'll try and give you uh, at least a a few things that you can do before that happens. (laughs) I personally don't have any sources for fresh peppers online. I don't know, like I'm a bit skeptical. There are probably some growers out there that do ship day of. I just don't know that I trust the carriers to get them to me in adequate time and But anyway, that said, I'm actually a bigger fan of dried peppers online because Mm -hmm. those, you can find some really great sources for really amazing peppers. Rancho Gordo has some chilies online. Calustians you can buy online. Uh, Dual you can buy online. The chilies that I always have in my pantry at all times are Guajillo, Ancho, Pasilla, uh, Morita or Chipotle, Cascabel, and Chili de Arbol. And with those chilies, I can make just about any Mexican dish. And every culture, every country has, you know, that uses a lot of hot peppers is going to have like sort of the fundamentals of chilies that are used in their cuisine. And so you can shop for those depending on like what it is that you really like making. And then just keep those stocked and you'll get the spice, you'll get the flavor without having to search for something that's fresh. Mm. But I also think that you might want to also explore your community because you might find that there is a Latin market or an Asian market or even the farmer's market. I think also to that point, like even at a regular grocery store, make friends with the produce manager. Totally. Um, And they might bring it in just for you. They might buy the smallest quantity and then put it out there and see if it sells. So let your market know that you're in the market. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, to that point, even the larger retailers, like let's say that there's a chain in your city that has multiple locations all over town, just because your grocery store that you normally shop at doesn't carry it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in that city. Right. So if you ask, you know, the produce manager or the one of the assistant managers or the manager of the store, like, hey, do you think that another store might carry these chilies, it might be that the store that's located in a predominantly Latin or Asian part of the city will carry that chili. So just ask and and talk to people. Yeah. Line two, you're on. Hi, Carla and Rick. This is Sarah. I was just calling to let you know that I'm very scared about at-home frying. I just don't know what to do with the frying oil after the fact. Can you save it? If you have to discard it, what do you do with it? Anyway, it prevents me from making a lot of things that I would like to make in my home kitchen. So 
What I do is I have a Dutch oven to fry in that has higher walls. So even if I'm deep frying where I need, you know, like a full bottle of oil, 32 ounces of oil, or it needs to come up halfway up the sides, you still have a good three to four inches above the rim of the pot to prevent the oil from splattering out onto the stove and onto the counter or yourself. But when I'm done with the oil, I make sure that the oil is completely cold. Uh, Just leave it out overnight. Don't touch it. There's no reason to touch hot oil. I save the bottles from that the oil came in, and then just put a funnel in it and pour the cold oil back into the bottle, put the lid on it, and then you can either throw it away or depending on what city you live in, there are companies that will take and dispose of used oil. So to me, that's the easiest way to deal with the old oil problem. Yeah, I think the two reasons people are afraid to fry at home is splattering, which high walls, deep pot high walls, getting oil on you is like obviously part of that. And then Yeah, hot oil is dangerous, right? You don't want to accidentally knock it off the stove. And so the best way to discard it is to do nothing with it until it is 100% cooled down. So I don't even, I just push that pan to the back burner, let it sit off heat until the next day before straining it and kind of deciding, could I use this again or does it have to go? Yeah, one other thing that I normally do, and I write this into recipes, you want to lay whatever it is that you're frying away from you so that you're dropping it into the oil and you're laying it down and and you're moving it away from your body so that if you drop whatever it is, the oil will splash away from you and hit your wall, your backsplash, and not you. Next caller, please. Hello. So my name is Tammy, and I recently wanted to make the scuttlebutt sandwich from this restaurant that's closed in Brooklyn called Salty. Maybe you've heard of it. I wanted to recreate the sandwich from scratch, all the different ingredients from the focaccia to the pickled beets, and one of them was the aioli. I went through about $16 of olive oil, I tried it twice. I used the food processor and both times it just did not emulsify. It came out way too liquidy. I don't really know what the problem was. So that was a bummer. I decided to just use mayo instead and dress up my mayo. I guess my question is like, if it's necessary to make your own aioli at that point, I'll leave it there for now. And thanks. Yeah, I just want to start by saying I used to love going to Salty, which was Carolyn Fidanza's sandwich restaurant, Mm. RIP. And the scuttlebutt was my favorite sandwich to get there. So I am like, oh, wow. Yeah, I feel cosmically linked to Tammy because I could totally understand why you would want to recreate this. It's delicious. So I have made aioli in a food processor, or rather a giant Roboku in a restaurant at ABC Kitchen. And I think it's definitely a skill that you acquire. Yeah. You have to, like, be very aware of your machine. But also, if you're only using one or two yolks, Mm -hmm. a lot of times the blades can't actually mix the yolk with the oil. And so what ends up happening is the blade just spins over the top of the yolk. So Mm. you're actually not emulsifying anything because nothing is actually moving. And so that could possibly be one of the reasons why her machine's not working. Whereas if you're in a restaurant and you're using, you know, like 
50 yokes, well, obviously, it's the blades are going to move the yokes around, and that might be part of the issue that she's having. Yeah. To back up a second, aioli is mayonnaise, and mayonnaise is aioli, and the whole ratio that's important is the ratio between the yolks and the oil because the yolks contain fat and liquid and they are the reason why the oil has something to bind to. And so the more oil that you can work into a yolk, the thicker your aioli is going to be. I actually can't make aioli in a blender or in a food processor. I fail every time and the most dependable way for me to make them is by hand. Yeah. So it's not you, it's the machine. So the only real reliable way to actually create the emulsification is to actually get a whisk and just go in there. Yeah, be the machine, Tammy. Be the machine, yeah. <laughs> As you're whisking, you'll actually feel the texture and the weight against the whisk. And then once you've mastered that, then you'll be in a situation where you can drop it into a blender or an immersion blender or a food processor, and you'll know exactly what is supposed to be happening. So to get back to the second part of her question, should you use mayo or is it worth it to make aioli? It really depends like what you're going to do with that condiment. Right. No, do it. I mean, shout out to Hellman's. I feel like Hellman's is great. It's really great. Great stuff. Now, that said, I do love making a good aioli. Same. But the, I mean, it's like, it's a special occasion thing. I'm not like, you know, whipping it up for like my ham sandwich. A hundred percent. That's totally fine. Especially if you're making pickled beets and hard-boiled eggs and maybe you made the focaccia. Like, just flavor the mayonnaise. Who's gonna know? <laughs> I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest who celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Before we go, it's time to dive into the deep, wide world of the World Wide Web. That's right, it's time for Rad Fad or Bad Fad. All right, Rick, I'm about to play a TikTok for you that I saw last week and I literally cannot stop thinking about. 
So you want to make the varro pasta chips, but you don't have an air fryer. Let me show you how to make it in the oven. First, toss your boiled pasta on a baking sheet and then drizzle with a little bit of olive oil, season with salt, pepper, and oregano, and then grated Parmesan cheese. Bake at 425 degrees for eight minutes and then toss and bake again for another five minutes. And my cheese sauce is two tablespoons of butter, half cup of heavy cream, one and a half cups of cheese, and a little bit of salt and garlic powder. And this is what I call pasta chips with a mac and cheese dip. Oh my God. Wow. I think that might be the first TikTok trend that I'm just like, I'm jumping on board right now. Like right away, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, rad fad, the end. So for everyone at home who did not have the quite tantalizing visuals, what we're seeing is a huge party platter of what looks to be like deep fried caramelized rigatoni. And in the center of the platter is just an ooey gooey, like what you wish the nacho cheese sauce at the stadium would actually be. <laughs> it looks really gooey. I mean, okay, let's just, let's break it down. So what we're talking about is carbs yeah. and dairy fat. Yeah. So that sounds, you know, whether it's bread and butter, cheese and crackers, or fried pasta and gooey cheese sauce, like right. what is not to love? I know, and that crunch. Crunch, uh, the crunch and the color. Like I'm, I'm really impressed by by everything that she did. Like there was nothing in that that I found, like anything other than joyful and brilliant. Also, kudos to this person. I love that she actually said, "If you don't have an air fryer, you can do it in the oven," which just adds a little bit more reinforcement to why you don't actually need an air fryer. Just use your oven. Yep, it's what we always say: high heat. In the oven, good as gold. All right, I feel like I don't even have to ask, but uh, pasta chip with a mac and cheese dip. Rick, is it a rad fad or a bad fad? Let me think about this for a second. Rad fad. Bellissimo, bravo. And that's it for this week's episode of Borderline Salty. But don't you worry, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can find recipes and recommendations from this week's episode in our show notes. If you have a question or a fear you want us to help you through, you can always leave us a voicemail at 833-433-FOOD. Our number again is 833-433-3663. Borderline Salty is an original production by Pineapple Street Studios. We're your hosts. I'm Rick Martinez. And I'm Carla Lolly Music. You can find our social handles in the show notes for this episode. Natalie Brennan is our lead producer. Janelle Anderson is our producer. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. Our assistant producer is Maria Rosco. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Mixing and engineering by Davy Sumner and Jason Richards. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. Original music from our very own Raj Makija. Additional music from Vincent Vega, Spring Gang, and Glovebox, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Legal services for Pineapple Street are provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochers. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. We appreciate Dulce, Sarah, Sal, Natalie, and Tammy for calling in this week. And thanks to you for listening. Talk to you next week. Ciao, ciao. Adios. Bye-bye. Hasta la pasta. <laughs> Don't let the door hitch on the way out. Bam. <laughs> 